I've now, as I crack on a bit in life, been involved in church leadership and eldership for around about 15 years, which has given me loads of different wonderful and great and tough uh, experiences. But if I'm honest with you, there's one type of situation that has caused me more uh, personal stress and sleepless nights in my leadership experience than any other time. And this is dealing with the issue of duplicity in myself and others that I trust in when it occurs. You know, duplicity at its heart is a two-facedness, where on the outside it looks like somebody is for you, but they actually turn out to be working against you or in competition with you in some ways. They're nice to your face, but their heart has something in it that's not rooting for you. They form an opinion of you that grows negatively. Do you know, experiencing it from others is a bit like biting into a lovely looking apple. You think you're getting a bite of something good, but in reality, you're ending up with a mouthful of bitter rot. It's horrible. And having it grow in yourself and your own lights means that when others come to rely on you, they will experience that same mouthful of rot from you. But sadly, the reality is, although these events are painful, this kind of rotten experience is part of life from time to time. It does occur. It's something that we will experience from others and something we have to protect from growing in our own hearts so that others don't experience it from us. Do you know, I've definitely fought it in my own heart towards others from time to time, particularly as a young church leader. My heart was not always right to some of my brothers in Christ or those people who were leading me at the time. I was proud and competitive. Uh, on the inside, I was fault-finding with other people, trying to think all the time about why I was better than them. Whilst on the outside, I maintained a nice, soft, holy voice and did everything I was supposed to. And sadly as well, I've experienced it towards me from people who I have been friends with and led. Do you know, possibly the time that caused me most personal anguish was a number of years ago in the workplace when an individual who I genuinely thought I had a really good working relationship with chose out of the blue to me at a time when I couldn't come into work because of some challenging personal circumstances, to go to my manager and lodge a complaint about me. And I remember I came into an email uh, when I came back into work that just explained this and how it absolutely floored me. The issues harboured in this email had never been raised with me directly and personally, and I felt attacked, betrayed, insecure, and utterly gutted. Why had they not been open and honest and come to me with these issues so we could have worked them out? Now, thankfully in this situation, I had some great friends who supported me and a really supportive manager over me who communicated confidence in me and drew out learning where it needed to be there and walked me through the challenging situation. But despite this support that I had, 
this situation really left trust scars in my life, in particularly two areas, both towards others, where I actually didn't want to put my trust in others again and run the risk of being hurt in that same way. And trust scars towards God. As I questioned, why, God, didn't you protect me from that pain and that situation? Why didn't you give me wisdom and insight to see that coming before it came? Why did you put me in that position where I could be hurt like that? I mean, this is the sad fruit of duplicity. Whether it comes to us from others or to others from us, it causes trust scars to grow. And these are really dangerous things for the people of God because they cause his people to withdraw and become untrusting of two of the central purposes of God for our lives. Developing a lack of trust for others damages his purpose for you to be part of his church, his beautiful bride, his gathered people as he intended, where you build deeply vulnerable, open, loving, supportive relationship with others that should be like a family, where we carry each other's burdens and cry each other's tears. You can't do this if you're carrying trust scars to others. Equally, developing a a damaged trust in God breaks his core purpose for you to give him your complete trust, to put your complete security in him. God wants his people to trust him implicitly and to come to him as the trustworthy one who cares for every aspect of your life, to have a father-child relationship with him. Well, we don't put a fig leaf over our shame, but we bring our burdens and shame to him to be dealt with in the father's love. You know, and it's because of these damaging implications for God's purposes in our Christian walks that it is vital, utterly essential, that we learn how to weed out duplicity and two-facedness when it grows in our own life, which it will at times. And we deal with it well when it does occur from others towards us and invite God to heal us when we know we have strayed from his plans for us as a result of it. But this raises the question, doesn't it? If it's so important, how do we deal with this issue of duplicity well? How do we spot it in ourselves so that we can pull this weed out of our own lives before it bears fruit? And how do we deal with it in others when it comes out and we have to face the hurt of it? How do we deal with that well? Thankfully, the Bible not only acknowledges this as this issue, that gives us answers to both of these questions. And where we are gonna continue with David's life in 2 Samuel chapter 15, we're gonna be covering a huge amount of ground today, so I'm not actually gonna read it, I'm gonna summarize it for you. Between chapters 15 and 18, the events here are an excellent place to go for answers to the questions that we've just raised. So please open your Bibles, turn to these today so you can see the story unfold as I point to different parts of it. You know, if we we're going to summarise the big story so far up until this point, despite the major failing and need to repent that we learned about last week in Chris CB's talk, in most and by most measures, David, at this point in his life and walk, when we hit 2 Samuel chapter 15, is still doing pretty well. 
You know, he has grown up from that boy in the field who protected his flock. He has overcome Goliath and external threats, seen off Saul, unified the northern and southern tribes of Judah. And as Chris said in his excellent preach, he has just seen 13 years of, in his 13 years of reign, he had achieved what 300 years of judges and Saul's leadership had not. The presence of God had been returned to the heart of the kingdom. Israel had known profit, increasing peace and expansion and victory over its enemies. I mean, David was a good king by many, many, many measures. But when we hit chapter 15, all of this progress suddenly falls apart for David pretty much overnight. And all because his son, Absalom, who was a gifted leader, a handsome, wise, articulate, influential young man with lovely long hair, apparently, leads a revolt against his father rather than supporting him that David had no idea about. There's no inclination, no indication in the Bible, in scripture, that he knew about this before it hit him in chapter 15. So in one go, overnight, Absalom drives David out of Jerusalem, back into exile, and splits God's people in two again. And suddenly, what we see in these chapters, as David is weak, is that all of the people who had been harbouring hidden ill in their hearts to him and his rule came out of the woodwork. So firstly, as we've just discussed in chapter 15, we learn that Absalom had this hidden ambition and how this grows to the point of revolt against his father without his father's knowledge. At the end of chapter 15, if you look to verse 31, we see again the unknown to David, the man who had been his most trusted advisor, Ahithophel, has been secretly conspiring with uh, Absalom against David. Then if you move on at the beginning of chapter 16, Ziba, a servant of Mephibosheth, Chris Butters, you did so well to pronounce that so many times a couple of weeks back. The heir to Saul's house, who Butters spoke on two weeks ago, comes to tell David that Mephibosheth, despite David's kindness to him, has also turned against him in order to try and regain his family's status under Absalom. You know, later it transpires that in this moment, Ziba might have been being deceptive in his own right and duplicitous in the report, but David just doesn't know. Then finally, later in chapter 16, verse 7 onwards, we're introduced to another of Saul's um, household, Shimei, who comes out as David is walking into exile, shows his true hatred for, for David and starts cursing him, throwing stones at him and insulting him. Now there is such such an abundance of broken trust here. Your son, your most trusted advisor, the man you had completely restored in mercy and grace to your household, and members of the very household in any other kingdom, as Butters taught us, would have been killed, all turning on you in a sudden hurricane of duplicitous hidden abuse. This is what David faced within these chapters. 
These are, again, as we look at them, some of the most extreme, painful moments we're learning about in David's life. But in them, we learn the answers to our two questions. How do I spot duplicitousness in myself so I can pull out this weed before it bears fruit? And how do I deal with duplicitousness in others when it comes out and I'm faced with the hurt of it? Where do we find these answers? How does this chapter or two give it to us? Well, firstly, what we have here is the example of Absalom to look at. And we see here in Absalom's example, we can see a number of clear signs of how to spot duplicity as it starts to grow in hearts. And then we can spot these and identify where we can avoid it bearing its fruit in our lives. Let's just look at a couple of these. If you go back to chapter 15, if you've moved on. In chapter 15, we see a couple of key things in Absalom's journey to outright revolt. Firstly, we see pride arise in his life. Absalom starts to get a really high opinion of himself and he begins to display a prideful, competitive heart to David that is seen in 15 verse 1 which says this, after this Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now chariots and processions were what the kings around Israel used to travel with to uh, show, show and state to everybody around them that they were somebody of high importance. There is a real self-promotion, self-trumpeting declaration in Absalom here. An outward indication that his servant supportive heart of his father was dying in him. Here, by doing this, by giving himself a chariot and all these people to run before him, he was presenting himself as an alternative king for Israel. Rather than being a teammate of David, he was setting himself up in competition with him, saying, look, I'm an alternative leader, a grander leader in many ways, equal in stature, if not more, because I'm worldly wise like the kingdoms around me. So the first thing to note here is that actually, as duplicitousness grows in him, it's accompanied by pride and competitive impulses. You know, we start to see, you'll start to see that death of servant-heartedness and a growth of these things in your life. The second thing we see is that he starts to undermine David in the eyes of others. You know, in verse 15, in chapter 15, verse 6, which I think is one of the saddest statements in this chapter of David's life, we find that Absalom steadily stole the hearts of the men of Israel from David. And if you look at your Bibles in the just preceding verses, he did this through mutterings, criticism and mis misrepresentation of David, but never, never to David's face, never in his presence. It was always behind his back in the shadows. And verse two to six says that over a number of years, he would stand outside Jerusalem's gate and intercept anyone who came for counsel with the king from around the kingdom. And he would quietly highlight David's faults to others in the kingdom, critique David for not being as accessible as he was. Then he would offer his advice, his wisdom in his father's absence to show that he was the only one with real wisdom and understanding 
to show that he was actually the best leader and to curry favour with them. Rather than using his clear talents, abilities and wisdom and gifts to build alongside, he was more concerned with winning others' opinions to himself than building the opinions of the king and the kingdom. So here, another sign of duplicity that we see here growing is undermining others behind their back. It's the second indicator of Absalom's duplicity that's growing here. Finally, what we see is that Absalom outright lied as well. In 15, 7 to 10, he is totally dishonest with David about what's really going on. He pretends to honour his father, he pretends and feigns humility, and he hides his true motives behind a smokescreen of godliness, actually, and godly motives. If I just read this to you from seven onwards. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of my trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. Do you see it? There's such misrepresentative motives here to his father. Your servant, my vow to the Lord. I mean, these are great words when they're honest words, but they're really bad words when they're used as a mask to true motives to ourselves and others. When we use them to outright lie and masks that duplicity has grown in our hearts. So there's the other one. You know, masked motives, lies to other people is a real sign that duplicity is growing in you. Interestingly, you know, actually, if we look at these three things together, in Absalom's pride, his competition, his muttering and his lies, he was doing the exact opposite of what David did as a young man towards Saul. The theologian Leichhardt describes Absalom here as the man Saul thought David was when David was younger. When Saul was king, David never sought to set him up in competition, self up in competition, only to play his part alongside the king in building the kingdom of God. Only, he only ever honoured before the people and behind Saul's back, Saul as the king, even when that came at great personal cost for him and when the king definitely did not deserve it. And when you, what you saw was what you got with David, Everything else was a conspiracy and insecurity of Saul's mind. David was an honest man, always. You know, God honours David's. Humble, Jesus-like, genuine servants. These are the people he wants to raise up. Not Absalom's, pretend servants, who, no matter how gifted, seek to harbour pride and sow division in his people. Absalom's life gives us these clear indicators of this pride, of competitiveness, mutterings, duplicity, that show us that that heart is growing in us. So, how do we spot duplicity in ourselves so that we can pull up this weed out of our life before it bears fruit? 
we must look for these traits of Absalom. And whenever competitiveness, whenever mutterings, whenever hiding our true motives comes out, we must, with God's help, stamp these things out, seek to repent and pull them up before they can bear fruit. Absalom's example here shows us what to look out for in our own hearts. So there's the first question answered. Absalom's example helps us identify issues in ourselves. What about when duplicitousness comes to the fore in other people? What do we learn about how to deal with that well here? For this, we have to look at David's example in these chapters because it shows us the most incredible response to two-faced deception he has just encountered. Let me just pick out a couple of things we see him do here. Firstly, trust. When faced with this deception, we see David remain completely secure in God, even though he does not know what will happen to him or the kingdom. We see this first in 15, 24 to 29, where David is leaving Jerusalem on the road and some priests come to meet him as he flees, bringing the ark with them. And David responds by saying, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favour in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. He will let me see his dwelling place again. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do what seems good to him. He says, don't take the presence of God out of the heart of the kingdom where it belongs. I trust God will do what God will do according to his own favour. That's what David says here, he trusts God. And we see the same kind of trust come out again when he's abused by Shimei on the road. And his men say to him, David, let's cut off the head of this dead dog of a man who insults you. And David says, no, leave him alone. It may be that the Lord has told him to curse me in 16 verse 10. And then he goes on in verse 12 to say, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. I trust in what the Lord will do in this situation is what he's saying. This isn't some kind of triumphalist faith that presumes in a conflict amongst kin that David will have God on his side. You know, it's just a simply deeply unshakable security in the sovereignty of God over all things, even if that wasn't to restore the kingdom to him. David here, in his response, resolves to have an unfazed security in God as he faces duplicity. That's the first thing. Secondly, and one of my favourite points here that we see is, when David finds out that his most trusted advisor has turned against him, his first impulse isn't to give up, say, oh Lord. It is to turn to the even greater advisor himself and ask for help in prayer. Very simply, if you look at verse 1531, David prays, oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness. He prays, he prays. Simple arrow prayer, no long words. And what is amazing is that although this is a tiny prayer in content, we see the Lord provides an almost immediate answer to it by bringing Hoshea, 
another of David's core advisors who remains loyal to him, who David is then able to send back to Jerusalem to undermine Ahithophel's counsel, to make it foolishness. And which if you read, go away and read chapter 17, he does incredibly and saves David's life. What an answer to prayer. But David's response to pain, to deception, is that he prays. He prays a simple prayer flowing out of his trust in the sovereignty of the Lord that changes the whole course of the kingdom. So he trusts and he prays. Finally, he loves. Actually, in particular, he keeps loving the one who has hurt him most here. And probably, again, one of the most remarkable responses to the pain that he has been caused. I mean, everything he's been building, all his life in God has just been torn from him. And we don't see fully this love until chapter 18, where actually the inevitable breaks out as a, as a result of Absalom's revolt here and war breaks out between Absalom and David's followers to gain control of the kingdom. And David, before the war, tells Joab, his general in 18.5, to deal gently for his sake with the young man Absalom. And afterwards, when David learns of his men's victory and Absalom's death, he weeps and cries out in, in such anguish and pain in 1833. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son? Now, David, despite the clear harm done to him by this man, the clear breach of trust, the clear attack on his life, never relinquishes his fatherly, loving heart for the one who did him harm in the face of duplicity. Do you know, in this situation, when we put these things together, you know, and the levels of duplicity David faced at the hands of his own people, it would have been so easy, so easy for him to have become violent and accusatory towards people, mistrusting and insecure in God like Saul became in old age, bitter and despondent towards those who hurt him, never loving anyone like Mehibaseth again. But he doesn't. He doesn't do this. Instead, he models for us a completely different path in his life that although very personally painful, sees the kingdom restored. He trusts, he prays, and he loves his enemy. It's quite some response. And this faith response that David models for us here, this is the plumb line, this is the scalpel to show us God's way to deal with duplicity and its possible effects. That actually, if you pause to stop and think about for a moment, incredibly mirrors the heart, the humility, and the attitude that Jesus models at the cross for mankind. Whereas he was betrayed by followers, he was attacked by his own people, he had insults and abuse hurled at him. And instead of fighting back or showing bitterness, he loved these people with an unbreakable fatherly love. 
he actually lived out David's plea at the end of chapter 18 to replace their deaths with his own death. He entrusted his life completely to God's plan in Gethsemane. And despite extreme personal cost, he went like a lamb to the slaughter, understanding that he was the sacrifice and suffering servant pointed to by God from the days of Abraham that would make a way for the very people that hurt him to be saved and restored to God, to see the kingdom restored to what it was always intended to be. David, as Jesus here, is the model of how God wants us to respond when faced with the challenges of deception and duplicitousness. And as such, he avoids the pitfalls of broken trust in God and broken trust in God's people. It is an amazing example to get hold of. Let's just wrap up and find a landing spot for all this information this morning, eh? A part of scripture's purpose for us is that it cuts us open. It exposes what is on the inside and where we may need to ask God to wash us clean and give us his forgiveness, his grace and his mercy again. You know, it asks us as we read its pages, are you aligned with what God wants for your life? And it invites us again to be restored in the grace that he pours out so abundantly upon us. And in the questions that this particular passage asks are how our hearts are doing when it comes to duplicity. Firstly, Absalom's example asks us, has a duplicitousness, a two-facedness got into our hearts at any point? Can you see any of the traits of Absalom's behaviour in your life that show you there's something not of God in there? Do you see that competitiveness with others or with other leaders? Are you misrepresenting, undermining someone in the family of God behind their back or beyond? You'll know if you are. The invite from today's word is to repent and move away from those temptations, not to succumb to them. And if needed, talk openly and honestly with the person you are struggling with. Secondly, this passage asks the question, if we are facing or have faced the hurt of duplicitousness, have we continued to walk in the path set by David and Jesus here to keep trusting, to keep praying and to keep loving? Or have we swayed into security, into lack of love, withdrawing from God's community and God himself as a result of undealt with hurts? Have trust scars? remained undealt within us. Here, the invite this morning is to be restored again into Jesus' example at the cross and to be restored again into the example of David. Listen, in a second, we're gonna worship again. I'm just gonna pray quickly as we finish. But I wonder, during this next worship song, why don't you kneel and do what David did from time to time to say, oh Lord, search me. Know me, search my spirit, search the depths of who I am. And if you find anything unpleasant in there, draw it to the surface so that the dross can be taken off 
and just that pure gold remains. Father, thank you that you love us so deeply in all circumstances. Thank you that your Bible is so honest with us, Father God, and such good food. Spirit, I pray, would you search your people this morning? And Father God, anywhere where we are found wanting in the area of two-facedness, duplicitousness, deception in our hearts, make it known to us that we might stamp it out completely and live in the unity and love with your people, Father God, and you as our King and Saviour that you designed for us to have. In Jesus' name, amen.